Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Double Check Podcast. I am Colin. And I am Brett. And we are very grateful and excited to have you joining us today. Whether you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, make sure you rate us, review us, give us five stars. You don't want people thinking that you're a hater. That's right. No haters allowed. No haters allowed. This is the NHA podcast. Actually, it's it's the Double Check podcast, but... DCP for short. <laughs> DCP. We Start do. a thing. Make it a thing. Hashtag DCP. It's a thing. Um, actually, you know, the more you take to the Twittersphere and the snap face and the book chat and all that kind of stuff and, um, you know, share what you – if you enjoy the podcast, we do encourage you to share it on those mediums. And uh, the more that you do that, I think the more that we're going to be able to get the word out there. Uh, and, in fact, we actually have gotten the word out all around the world, haven't we, Brett? We have. We have listener mail all the way from – any guesses, Colin? Um, China? No, not China, but almost as far – well, basically just as far – Australia. Australia. Yeah. Wow. We are an international podcast now. So if you didn't think that we were legit before, we're legit now. All wow. right? But, yes, we do have listener mail all the way from Australia. This is from a guy named Jake. And Jake says, I'm a fellow believer here. I really enjoy what you are doing. The podcast is super well done. Well, thank you, Jake. I appreciate that. Yes, thank you. And uh, he wants to tell us both. Uh, oh, he can tell that we're both knowledgeable on the subject matter. At least we fake it till we make it. That's right. And he appreciates the research that we do beforehand. Well, I, uh, I appreciate that you appreciate that. He goes on to roast me for not liking the little drummer boy. Obviously. Well deserved. Well deserved. Yeah. So he goes on to do that. He brings up a similar point that John did, our last listener mail, uh, where if the drummer boy only has the drum to bring before the king, then what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with the story itself. I don't think it's, it's – I, I just don't think it's a good song. I just don't think it's well done. And he says that this one thing might be the only thing that Brett – and uh, me, that he and I agree on, or disagree on, but he needs to know, or I need to know that I am dead wrong. Well, thank you for that that mail, Jake, and he signs off with much love, loyal listener. Well, we appreciate all our loyal listeners. Now, uh, I think that there was a little portion of that you skipped over, Brett. Um, Let me see if I can pull it up here. Because uh, he he brought up something in that in that listener mail, which by the way, Jake, we definitely appreciate that. Keep those comments coming. If you want to send us something, uh, doublecheckpodcast at gmail dot com. But in in uh, one one little section there, he also says, by the way, pa pum pum definitely loosely resembles a drummer playing softly. You know, that's actually something that I did want to bring up in our discussion of that that I never did is because, like, we always picture it as, like, it's a snare drum, right? Because that's what we think of, like, pop, 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 yeah. the, the snare drum. But first century Palestine, dude probably did not have a snare drum. It was probably, yeah. like, something he fashioned with, like, a lambskin cover or something like that. Probably sounded more like a djembe, you know, kind of like. I so, can get it. I so, can dig it. Yeah, I think that that pa pum pum might have actually been somewhat accurate. Do you have any other comments on that, Brett? No, I don't. I'm excited for what we're doing today. So you want to get to the coin flip? Yeah, let's get to it. All um, right. 
You are going to call it today, and I'm going to flip. Yes, and we actually have a quarter this week. We do. So we're back on track with the official quarter. That's heads, and that's tails. This is the official flip, episode 14, underway. Head. Head. He called head, and it's a head. It is one head. I don't know why we say heads. There's one head there. It's the head's side. It's a possessive. But if, okay. But I'll, I'll <laughs> I actually don't know if that's accurate. I don't know but either, sure. but I think if people were to write it down, I don't see people put apostrophe. Yeah, no, they don't. I, so. I just got, we're double checking our thinking on life, theology, culture, and quarters. Anyway. <laughs> that's uh, part of culture, right? Coin flips. It is. It is. Uh, I will be selfish and I'll go ahead and start this episode. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to continue my series about relationships today. Uh, stepping away from romantic relationships and into some other areas. There's definitely a lot that I want to come back to and talk about in romantic relationships, but today I want to focus specifically on our relationships with our children. Now, I understand that I don't have children, and some people may think that I'm not qualified to talk about this, but I think that me not having children at this moment that I'm talking about it, actually makes me really qualified to look at it objectively and be able to make some determinations before, Lord willing, I have children. So the question that I want to ask first and I want to explore is, what are the goals of having children? You don't just set out to do something just to do it. There's always a goal There's always an end game to something that you do, even if it is just enjoying the process of doing something. So we're going to look at this from two different vantage points. One, we're going to look at it from the vantage point of a secular worldview. And then two, we're going to look at it from the vantage point of a Christian worldview. And I'm going to set aside the fact that having children is or can be a just for the experience in and of itself kind of thing right? I'm going to go beyond that. I think secular people and Christian people alike can come to the conclusion that children are enjoyable just to have around, even if that isn't you somehow. It is a way that other people feel. There are people that just enjoy uh, and have fun having children. But I want to go past it, like I said. I want to go to some deeper reasons to have children. So whenever it comes to the secular worldview, I think there are many things that contribute to people wanting to have children other than they're just fun themselves. I think the first of these could possibly be security. I think about this perhaps relating to people that want to have someone around whenever they're older, someone who is tied to them to help take care of them. And this is a really important part of life to be able to have someone to depend on. Thinking about children as security, remember how people who would work on the farms or other similar ways of life would have a lot of children so that they would have a lot of people to help around the house and to help on the farm? By having more people around, they were able to secure their future by making sure that they had enough workforce. I think another reason that people have children from a secular worldview perhaps, is because that they want to continue their family line. This is especially true of honor cultures. Being held in high esteem for as long as possible is very important to some people. So by having children, they put their hope for the future of their family, for the honor of their family, in that child. 
in that same vein, someone may want to have children so that their own personal legacy is furthered. This is similar to the family line, except for the fact that this person wants to be able to ensure that they themselves have something that lives on after them. In this way, the child is much like a company that they may create or something similar. By this child continuing to live and hopefully embodying the person that created them, someone's name and legacy will be able to live on in another person. The three reasons that I just went over, security, family line, and honor, and then personal legacy. Uh, and I'm sure there are many other reasons why people would have children. They aren't bad things. I think we can agree that it is good that someone wants to pass on something good for the future, to think beyond themselves. And it's also good to think about the future in terms of our security as well. We want to make sure that we're taken care of. But I want to ask those of us that come from the Christian worldview, what are our goals for having children? What are our goals for those children? When I think about having kids, I think about my sister and my brother-in-law and the kids that they have. There's a verse that is really important to them. It comes from Psalm 127, 3 through 5, and I'm reading from the CSB version. Verse 3, sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. So taking the scripture into account, we need to remember that the children that we have are indeed a heritage from the Lord, an offspring of reward. They are not from ourselves. So really, they are not ultimately our security, our honor, our personal legacy. They can definitely contribute to those things, but ultimately, they are not for that. I think you get a good idea for what the verse is saying when it says children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. But what do arrows do? Arrows are sent out. They are offensive weapons, not defensive weapons. So whenever children end up moving away, what is a parent to think? In a lot of ways, that takes away from the security of the parent. Depending on what you find important, it may be perceived to take away from your legacy or the legacy of your family. But we have to remember that our children are grown up to be sent out. That's not just moving away, but to be sent out, to do what God has called them to do. I think about friends who have contemplated going out into the mission field to other countries, and they're only met with hostility and disappointment from their families. Are our relationships with children only for our benefit, or are we putting God first? Or what about a child that decides to have an adoption instead of pursuing having their own biological children, own being in quotes? There are people who get upset with this because of pride and personal legacy and legacy of the family line and all sorts of other reasons. Although God tells us that adoption is good and we should take care of the orphans and the widows, more important for these people, perhaps, are the things that contribute to a sense of self-worth for them. And there are so many other dimensions and perspectives on this. I don't want to sound like I'm distilling it down too much. But in light of looking at what the secular world may want in children and how things play out in the Christian worldview, how do we decide how we interact with our children? How should we have children? Like all things, we have to come to a grounding principle. 
a baseline on which to build our lives. For some people, that is their children. And I'm talking about both secular and Christian alike. As admirable as having and raising children is, what is our foundation on which we think about them? And are Christians really different than the world in this regard? I think most of the time, they aren't. So, um, I do have a few questions. And first one, I want to clarify something that you said um, here at the end. Uh, When you say, are Christians really different than the world in this regard, and you say that most of the time you think they aren't, is that... Is that a bad thing, or is that sort of something that's neutral, that Christians don't have a different mindset about that? Like I said before, there are all sorts of great reasons to have children and ways to think about children. But as Christians, we're called to be set apart in many different ways, most different ways, I would say. And I don't think – I don't think – having children and how we think about children and our purposes for having children are, are any different. And so whenever I say that that in practice right now, Christians and secular people, how they think about ch- children and the reasons why they have children, and, and they are pretty much the same most of the time, that is not a bad thing, but it's not the church, the Christian uh, people coming from a Christian worldview, it's not them living up to being set apart and being different. And I think this is a, a, a place that we can be different and we should be different. And so that's that's kind of uh, what I want to touch on then, too. And I know you said you don't want to sound like you're distilling it down too much, but you give a number of things in there, reasons for having children, that you paint the picture that these things are strictly secular, And so I want to ask you about these. Uh, The first one is security, that people have children um, because they they want to be secure, essentially, you know, as they grow older, they want those children to be able to to take care of them. Well, biblically, you know, I look at the the stories in Scripture and, and, you know, thinking of Genesis 38, where Judah refuses to give Tamar a husband so that she can have offspring. The reason Tamar cares so much about that is so that she can have somebody to take care of her when she's old, so that she's not destitute and, and penniless and just, you know, dies a horrible death by herself. And also the book of Ruth, when Ruth and Naomi come back from, from Moab, you know, they, they need to find Ruth a husband so that she can be taken care of and have, have children. Um, so that, that seems like something that is not strictly secular um, in in that being a reason for having children. The second one is is, um, uh, the family line. They want to continue their family line. Well, biblically, family lines were very important when it came to inheritance, land inheritance, uh, financial inheritance, all of those things. And that's why there's these specific, very precise genealogies throughout the scripture in Genesis 5, in Matthew 1, in, in Luke 3. That's, that was, it was a cultural thing, but it also is something that it, it's important we see because it, it proves that Jesus is legitimately has a claim to the throne of David. So, you know, so there's, there's some biblical importance that's tied up in those things. The third one, you talk about people want to have their own personal legacy and tying this one biblically, you know, I, I, I think that 
I'm just going to all cards on the table. I might be kind of reaching for this one, but the scripture does say that, you know, those who are believers in Jesus are born again as children of God, were accepted into the family of God. And so it uses that language to talk about God as our father and us as his children, and we have an inheritance from him. And, you know, that is part of his legacy in the world, that he's making children of every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. And so, you know, as you lay these things out, you, you, you sort of painted the picture that these were strictly secular reasons, secular ideals, and the, yet we look at Scripture and we see the same ideals there. How do we reconcile that? Perhaps the, what I could have said better, and I'll say right now, is that these things are not bad in and of themselves, and they are not just strictly secular. Whenever I say that someone will come at this from a secular worldview, and this is what the, these are some examples of things that they might say, it's that these are the things that are the final things. And so let me expound on that for a second. So whenever uh, someone who doesn't believe in God, uh, doesn't believe in a higher power, whatever, however you want to define that, whenever they have children and they're looking at them for security and for advancement of their personal line and uh, personal legacy, whenever they have children for that reason, that is the final reason why they have children. And so... People have these inclinations to have children for these reasons because they're good reasons. And like you just said, you just laid out an argument for why they're good reasons is because God designed it that way. And so what I'm saying is is that Christians are stopping at these good things, these good reasons for having children. And whenever something impedes on that, whenever they maybe move away whenever they want to go out in a mission field, whenever they want, and what the other example that I had was uh, adopt someone, right? It's not, it's not our family blood, right? Well, it might not be your family blood, but can't we see that there's a higher calling here than just the good thing that it is to have, a, have our own quote unquote biological children? They're still our children, right? And so in some ways, these things are made into idols that this is where we stop. And we can, God has called us to even more than that. All these things are good, but God may be calling people to more than that. And we can't let these smaller things, good things from God, get in the way of that. Okay. Uh, any final thoughts? No, I think I'm good with that. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I will continue this relationship talk with something else. But next week, I will veer away again. <laughs> it's going to be like an every other week kind of thing. Sure. So where, where are you taking us in our next episode? Next week, I'm going to uh, explore uh, the idea of the moment that salvation happens, the moment that you ask Jesus into your heart. And I just want to maybe call some people to think a little differently about it and something that I've learned through my own experience, um, that moment of salvation or or turning yourself over to the Lord, what does that look like uh, in reality most of the time? Okay. Yep. So what do you have for us this week, Colin? Well, so today I want to take a moment to address something that uh, you and I, Brett, have sort of taken as the basic foundation of almost everything that we've talked about in this podcast, which is the notion 
that the Bible is truth. And I'd like to address this because I would like to actually give some reasoning as to why I believe that that is the case, especially for the person listening who does not presuppose this. Now, perhaps you're somebody who was raised in the church and you have always been told that the Bible is true, but you've never discovered it for yourself. Or perhaps you're somebody who doesn't actually believe in Jesus and you think that, well, maybe the Bible has some good moral teaching, but it's not necessarily all true. Well, wherever you are and whatever your thoughts about the biblical texts are, I would like to talk to you about this because this is something that I personally had to go through a journey of my own to discover. See, I'm not somebody who really grew up in the church. I was not influenced by church culture, and nobody insisted to me that I needed to believe the Bible. We went to church a little bit, and I had a little bit of exposure to Scripture at a very young age, but from the age of about 9 or 10 through the age of about 21, I didn't have anything to do with the church or with Christianity at all. And in those years, which are the years that most people really start to figure out what they believe for themselves, I began to do just that. And for me, this included a journey of discovery of what really is true. And during this time, I read all 66 books of the Bible for myself, not as a believer, but as someone who was just trying to figure out what was true about God, about humanity, and about my own existence. I also read most of the Quran and a lot of the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism and the sutras of Buddhism, as well as other works of history, philosophy, and theology. And what I discovered is actually something that I've heard be expressed best in the words of Ravi Zacharias. Mr. Zacharias is a Christian apologist who was born in India, and he is easily one of the sharpest, most well-spoken people that I've ever heard. He often speaks on university campuses around the world, and he takes questions from the audience. On one occasion at the University of Illinois, a student asked him the question as to why a person should believe that the Bible is the Word of God as opposed to any other holy book. And I'm going to let you listen to his response, which I think answers the question perfectly, and then I'll come back and just add a couple of additional thoughts. In my book, Can Man Live Without God, uh, which, was, which was a series of lectures delivered at Harvard, the second part of it deals with that very thing. So let me start off as best as I can. First, I believe that truth as a category does exist. Number two, it is possible in a majority of claims of philosophical and historical statements to verify the truthfulness of those affirmations. Third, I believe there are existential realities from which I cannot run, which drive me to find the answers to the existential struggles that I live with, not just the philosophical ones. The philosophical ones are real, and I have to deal with them, but so are the existential ones. And by the way, existentialism came as a response to the unpaid bills of philosophy. Philosophy had become so cerebral that the passions had been ignored and existentialism came into being and sort of tossed out the rationalistic way of interpreting things and went purely with the gut level feeling a la Sartre and Camus and so on. But I think what we are trying to do is if we are trying to find the bridge between the head and the heart, there are numerous ways of doing this. 
And the way you start off with by saying, if you take the Bible as the question, then why the Bible and why not any other system of thought? You start off with uh, the scriptures and ask yourself the question. Here there are 66 books by nearly 40 different authors over 1,500 years that are books on history, that are books on philosophical thinking, that are books on theological thinking and systematic thinking. Now, if the Bible made several assertions, one after another, that you found out to be false, either historically or philosophically or in the existential realm, you go further and further, and if you see that kind of systemic contradiction and failure, then you have reason to believe that I cannot really trust this document. It is not in keeping with the way I am seeing history and reality. But when you look at the scriptures, and by the way, the Bible is a very distinctive piece of literature to any other religious piece of scripture. Any Muslim will tell you that his book, the Quran, is word for word perfect. It is a perfect revelation of Allah in the eye of the Muslim. They will affirm that again and again. That's why no translation in, of the Quran will ever do justice in their estimation of the Quran. It is the perfect expression of, uh, of Allah himself as dictated to Muhammad who recited it. Now, the Bible as we, know, as we know it does not affirm that verbal perfection. I actually have a great deal of difficulty with verbal perfection. Are we really saying that no one word would have been better than the other word in, in, these, in the volume of material? But when you take the scriptures disclosed over centuries and over, over 1500 years, as I said, 40 different writers, 66 books, and you see the prophetic schema all the way down to the person of Christ. Let me give you an example of this. The book of Daniel is written in the late 500s before Christ. And yet when you study the book of Daniel, you begin to see the specifics of a fantastic prophecy. He talks about a massive empire that will come into being and how that, that empire will be, will be divided into four and that empire will be led by what they call a strident, strong he-goat from the west who will be marching several nations underfoot but shall be suddenly cut off and his empire will be divided into four. Those four then emerge into two and those two blend into one. When you take the book of Daniel, written late 500s, and put it pro forma onto Alexander the Great in the 300s before Christ, you see the stridency of Alexander suddenly cut off in his 20s. Four kingdoms emerge given to his four generals. Those four come into the two, the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid empires. That emerged then into the Roman Empire. Centuries before to be so specific in prophecy. You go to the prophecy of Zechariah who describes the crucifixion of Christ. They shall look upon him whom they have pierced and weep as a mother weeps for her only son. You go to the prophecy of Isaiah and see the, how the Christ is going to suffer. Immediately you see the supernatural. Immediately you see the supernatural. So when you take the miraculous element, you take the historic element, you look into the scriptures and you see there is an authenticity and it all points to one perfect person, the person of Christ. Bruce Metzger, who is a scholar from Princeton, made the comment, he said, after you take the 20,000 lines of the New Testament, it is safe for any scholar to say there's at least a 99.6% accuracy. No ancient document, none, 
has the kind of documentary support that the Bible has. Over 5,000 documents or even Time magazine in 88, I think, Richard Osling made the comment. One thing we cannot deny the Christians, he said, is the documentation that is available across the centuries. Nothing in ancient literature matches it. Neither Homer, nor uh, Aeschylus, nor any one of the, nor the Gaelic Wars of Caesar, whatever. So when you've got this kind of documentation, this kind of accuracy, that kind of a person in the person of Christ, I think you've got pretty compelling evidence to see why it is that we need to take Christ very seriously. Okay, so uh, there's not really a lot that I can add to that, but I'm going to just say a couple of things. Uh, number one, if you compare the claims of the Bible to the facts of ancient history, they line up perfectly, much more perfectly than any other religious text. The Quran, for example, which was written in the 600s AD, makes the claim that Jesus did not die. But if you were to examine the records of first century Roman historians who predate the Quran, you will find that this claim is verifiably false. He died on the cross. It's a historical fact. And there are many other such examples in other religious writings where the claims that they make contradict the verifiable facts of history, science, and the discoveries of archaeology. The Bible, on the other hand, has only been strengthened and confirmed by the findings of history, archaeology, and science. Second, the amount of fulfilled prophecy is staggering, and it is something that no other religious text can claim. This is something that Ravi touched on in that audio, but it warrants being reiterated. The precision of the biblical texts, the number of things that were written about before they happened, and the fact that we can look back in history, especially at the events surrounding the person of Jesus, and see the precise accuracy of the things that were foretold is remarkable. For example, when you look at Psalm 22 or, or, or Zechariah 14 and you see how they describe the crucifixion in detail, well, they were written centuries before crucifixion was even invented, not let alone that Jesus came along and did that. And the fact that no other religious text in the world can claim that they have that type of precise predictive abilities, that sets the Bible apart in a very unique way. Additionally, the authorship and the structure of the Bible is also incredibly unique. This Bible of ours is a collection of 66 books that were written in three different languages by 40 different authors over a period of about 1,400 years. But when you see the structure of it and how it's all masterfully woven together and how it all points to the person of Christ, even though most of the authors were from different backgrounds, they never met, they didn't all write in the same language, and they could not have collaborated because of their geographical locations, when you see that structure and you see how it is perfectly in harmony with the findings of archaeology and science, and you see how the Bible has accurately and precisely predicted world events centuries before they happened, what you begin to discover is that this collection of books had to have its origin from outside our time domain. Its ultimate author had to be outside of the dimension of time altogether. In other words, its author is none other than God himself. 
But finally, may I say to you that you will not be convinced of any of this until you discover it for yourself. That doesn't mean you need to make a comprehensive study of all the religions of the world. You can if you want to, and there is great benefit in that. But to discover the truth of the Bible, you only need to read the Bible for yourself. And that's the only way that you're going to be truly convinced of its veracity. So you need to get into it and discover what the Bible says for yourself. Not what Colin Schultz says, not what Brett Cox says, not what your pastor's opinions of the Bible are, not what your church leaders tell you it says. No, no, none of that counts. You need to find out what it actually says for yourself. Can you expound on how important or maybe not important you think the Torah is, meaning the first five books of the Bible? The Torah, I think, has uh, incredible significance uh, because there are, first of all, when you think about uh, the Old Testament as revelation, right? So Jewish boys in first century Palestine, the time of Jesus, they were required from birth till the age of five, basically their life was memorizing the Torah, And what do I mean by memorize? I mean memorize. I mean a rabbi would pull out his, uh, you know, his Tanakh, and he would begin to read from the Torah, and he would say, but Pharaoh tried to kill Moses. And then he would point to you, and you had to finish it. You had to finish exactly what was happening in the passage that he was quoting. You had to have it memorized. So this was something that they were deeply immersed in, and even the, the disciples of Jesus, when they didn't, you know, they, they obviously didn't complete because you have to be one of the best of the best to go on to become training to, to become a rabbi. They obviously didn't complete that, so they probably didn't memorize it super well. Even still, when they encounter Jesus, from what they know in the Torah, they recognize that this is the Messiah. And there's a number of occurrences in just the first five books of Moses that point to Jesus Christ. There's a number of places where scholars think that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in, in, in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 17 and, and 18. And uh, I don't think that you can diminish the significance of that at all. So I, I think that that's, you know, the Torah is something that's profoundly significant. So using the argument that was set before uh, about uh, Muhammad uh, dictating the entire Quran, the author of the Torah in its entirety was Moses. Yes. How can we trust uh, Moses to write this, these five books in and of himself that are so influential that many would say are the foundation of not only Judaism but Christianity as well? How can we trust this one author did what he was supposed to do and not trust one author of the Quran? Uh, well, I mean, that's, that's a valid question. And I think what it comes down to is you have to compare uh, what they wrote. So both Moses and Muhammad make the claim that they received this revelation from God that was more or less dictated to them, uh, and they wrote it down. And this this uh, revelation 
is directly from the mouth of God. It's, it's as if God wrote it with his own finger. Well, if it's directly from the mouth of God, it's not going to get anything wrong, right? And when you look at, and this is something that I touched on a little bit in my thesis, when you look at some of the claims of the Quran, you know, the, the fact that they say that Jesus did not die on the cross, that he only appeared dead, that is verifiably false when you take into account other uh, historical records from uh, Josephus and Pliny the Elder and, you know, Roman historians of the first century, he, he did. He died on the cross. It wasn't just, oh, we think he's dead. So the fact that, and that's just one example, but the fact that there's a claim about uh, the facts of history that is untrue, to me, it's like Ravi said in the, in the audio, you begin to see, well, I can't really trust this document because this document is making the claim that it's being from, that it's from God. <laughs> Why is he getting this stuff wrong? Whereas if you look at the Torah, you don't have that. There's nothing that's verifiably false. There's no claims that, it's, that it makes that contradict the, the facts of history and, and science and, and the findings of archaeology. Yeah, so I'm going to leave my final question open-ended for our listeners, which is a lot of people uh, think that there are contradictions in the Bible, and a lot of people do have certain things that they think are false uh, about what the Bible says. So I'm going to leave it open to our listeners. If you have one of those things, it doesn't have to be a long email. Just type out a one- or two-sentence question that you have about the Bible Send it to us, and we will, since this is so important to the foundation of this entire podcast, I think this should be an ongoing dialogue between us and our listeners, and we'll answer one or one or two of those, maybe, maybe even more if we get more. But uh, as we uh, continue through the podcast, I'd like to come back to this and revisit this um, and, and provoke some, some more conversation. Yeah, I like that. Uh, so where are you going to go next week, Colin? Well, um, I am going to kind of circle back and uh, begin to touch on some of the things that we have um, just mentioned before, sort of mentioned in passing in regards to church culture and contemporary Christianity. Um, and I'm going to talk about um, what I would call the church's edifice complex. Um, and that's just sort of a Silly way of saying that the, the church building is what I'm going to talk about next week. Why do we have a building? And is it is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Um, that's what we're going to talk about next week. All right. And since you said the weird word edifice. That was I mean, the magic word. That was the magic word. And I kind of let you keep going just a little bit. Just a little bit so you can get your thought out. But since you said that, that magic word, uh, we are going to wrap up our time here. Do you have any final closing thoughts? Um, no, just would really love to hear from our listeners. Um, I know that there's a lot of um, things that people have that give them res reservations about the Bible. Um, I wouldn't say that Brett and I are Bible experts, but we do like to do a lot of research. Yeah. Um, so if you, if you have anything that you think is contradictory or wrong in the scripture, feel free to send that to us. You can send it anonymously if you want, uh, but we will um, try and look into it and do our best to give you an answer. 
email us those though at doublecheckpodcast at gmail.com. Yep, and we look forward to hearing from you, your questions, maybe a question that has been asked of you before that you didn't really know how to approach it. And we will see you next week. See ya.